I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Attack the weakness. It sounds like something out of Game of Thrones, but today we apply the phrase to a more important and real battle, the one against breast cancer. As you'll hear, Dr. Alan Ashworth is part of a team that developed something called PARP inhibitors and, quite creatively, identified ways to use them to attack the weaknesses of various cancers, including breast cancer. As a recent new report noted, with three recent FDA approvals and a number of Phase three trials ongoing, the drugs are seeing a surge in interest. How do PARP inhibitors work and what might they mean for attacking cancer's weaknesses? That's just part of what I discussed with Dr. Ashworth, who, by the way, prefers to be called Alan. Some background. He's the president of UCSF Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center and senior vice president for cancer services of UCSF Health. He's also a professor in the Division of Hematology and Oncology at UCSF's Department of Medicine. Dr. Ashworth is an elected member of EMBO, the Academy of Medical Sciences, and a fellow of the Royal Society. He's won a number of the world's leading scientific prizes and awards, and he's also a BCRF investigator since 2008. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these Investigating Breast Cancer Conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to iTunes, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Alan Ashworth. Dr. Ashworth, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. It's a great pleasure to talk to you, Chris. So it seems like the heart of your research, the impetus, if I'm understanding it correctly, comes from a simple and confounding fact. The specifics of breast cancer can differ significantly from one person to the next. Is that right? Indeed. Uh, It's probably right to say that each breast cancer is unique. The genetic changes in each breast cancer are all different. And uh, that leads to uh, this uh, counterintuitive uh, diversity that we've seen uh, between breast cancers. And of course, even though everyone is different, they can be grouped into classes. Um, Mm. So we need to pay attention both to the similarities and the differences between cancers. And one focus of your research is to understand how various gene mutations, and I guess those various mutations certainly get at why we both must treat each case uniquely, of course, but also create some types of groupings and and categories, um, that, that various gene mutations affect tumor cell behavior and how to identify targets to reduce resistance to anti-cancer therapies. That's what I'm interpreting as um, at least one focus of your research. So I- explain that to me, if you would. What, what does that mean? Yeah, well, well, perhaps I should just give you a, a, a little historical background of how uh, we got to um, that subject that you've just described. Yes, please. So I've been very interested for the last 20-odd years in in why some women are at a very high risk of breast cancer and ovary cancer and men with prostate cancer. Uh, And there are some genes that we know about uh, that uh, we've identified called BRCA1 and BRCA2 that give a very elevated risk. And I was involved in the uh, in finding the BRCA2 gene in 1995, and that's driven a lot of my research uh, subsequently. 
Uh, and we, we were able, uh, along with many colleagues, to understand why a BRCA mutation led to this elevated risk. And it came down to a defect in the ability of cells with this mutation to repair their own DNA. Mm. So DNA became more mutated in these individuals than it does in individuals that don't have this mutation. And that actually is the underlying cause of cancer, just a high immunogenic rate. Mm -hmm. And so we can separate those cancers from other cancers that don't have that property. So that's the first thing is that we can identify women at risk. And there are options, rather unpalatable options, but um, some find it preferable to living with a risk of cancer, so removal of at-risk organs, the breasts and the ovaries. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the first thing. It allows us to look into families for, for those at risk. Second thing is it gives us an understanding of what causes the cancer. And that has led uh, work from our lab in 2005 demonstrated that although uh, one gets an increased risk due to this mutation frequency, elevated mutation frequency due to the inability to repair DNA, repair, repair DNA properly, it also provides an opportunity. And that opportunity is to treat with drugs that make the, that condition worse. And I should just explain what I mean by that. Yeah, so many cancers, attack many cancer treatments attack things that cancers have learned how to do like grow fast and so chemotherapy kills fast growing cells which is why it is somewhat cancer selective we took a counterintuitive approach where we said well this dna repair deficiency is driving the cancer but it actually provides a weakness let's attack this weakness so rather than saying let's fix the problem we made the problem worse by adding in a drug that also blocked DNA repair, drugs called PARP inhibitors. Yep. And it turns out that these um, BRCA mutant cells and some other related cells are uniquely sensitive to these agents, maybe a thousand times more than cells that don't have the mutation. So that observation was enough to drive clinical trials in this area. And after a, a long, a very involved process, these drugs were approved for ovarian cancer in 2015 and uh, breast cancer a year or so ago. Uh, and they, are, they will be part of the standard treatment now for BRCA-related breast and ovary cancer and probably will extend out to uh, prostate cancer. Yeah, it, it, so you can see that summary of 20-odd years' work, um, the journey from basic discovery through to application of a, of a therapy. Isn't it nice to be able to uh, boil 20 years' worth of work down to uh, <laughs> you know two minutes of explanation? So It seems only yesterday. I'm, I'm sure it does, and uh, neither you nor I have aged a bit since then. <laughs> uh, um, two, two points I want to follow up on. One, um, yes, the, uh, um, the PARP inhibitors, PARP inhibitors, um, you know, the, the, the results and, and what's occurred in just the last couple of years, um, extraordinary. Uh, but I want to pick up, you, you identified, it, it was counterintuitive. You identified, yeah. you know, instead of attacking, um, you know, the, 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 the reducing the results or attacking the, the, the outcome, I guess you were saying, you, you went right at yeah. the problem itself. Um, wh what caused is it something about you? Is it something about the colleagues that you were working with? Is it something I know that you work as well? You're a translational 
um, scientist. Maybe we yeah. can talk about what that means. What was it? What's so wrong with you that you thought counterintuitively about the problem? Well, you know, I'd like to tell you I woke up one day and uh, said Eureka, but it very <laughs> rarely works like that. And it's about being prepared. You know, you you all the stuff you do before prepares you for the moments of insight. And we've been working on the function of BRCA1 and BRCA2, what they did in normal cells. And we knew about DNA repair and we're thinking about vulnerabilities. Uh, and we, in fact, already uh, piloted approaches, similar approaches using existing chemotherapies, uh, uh, platinum chemotherapies that weren't at the time widely used in breast cancer. So we were kind of thinking along the right lines and then a series of accidents and opportunities led us to um, try out these PARP inhibitors with the aim of finding this vulnerability. But I you know, have to tell you that our expectation that the effect would be so profound, uh, we never, never had that expect- expectation. We thought there might be some activity, but to, when we saw this first result with a thousand-fold sensitivity, we just went, wow, this has to be real. It has to be important. And what happened then, again, it was about having a lot of close colleagues, clinical colleagues, and, and basic colleagues. We were able to move this into a clinical trial um, uh, incredibly quickly because there was a trial already uh, being developed, mm-hmm. and we were able to adapt that trial. So um, that was only because we were in the right place at the right time. Uh, but it also speaks to the power of uh, of collaborative working. And I think in the modern world of cancer research, the, it, this is the way the insights and developments will be moved through uh, rapidly. The, the, it, it still does happen that people publish papers with one person on them or two people working on their own in a lab. But it's very difficult to move that observation to, uh, to clinical benefit and you'll have, unless you have a team. You know, if I were to give you two of the key themes that I have gained from these conversations with uh, the leading uh, cancer researchers and biologists and computer scientists and, and so on that, that I've had the privilege to talk to from around the world, um, one is the point you just made, uh, you, you know, there is hardly – a go-it-alone approach. And as you mentioned, every once in a while you get that, and that's terrific as well, of course. We'll take those wins. Um, but but the collaboration is key too, and I wonder if you have felt this, um, the ability to take insights from one area of cancer and research that's going on in one part of cancer and one part of the body totally, and then applying it to another, I guess in in this case for these conversations, quite often breast cancer. Um, Do you find that as well? I know you mentioned that uh, the PARP inhibitors, you're doing work and it's, um, you know, it it involving breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and you expect it to hit uh, prostate cancer as well. But this ability to take lessons and insights from one area of cancer research and apply them to others just seems um, transformational to me. Am I getting that right? Has that been your experience as well? Yeah, I think that's perfect. And I think one of the interesting things that happened in this story is that we started working on breast cancer and we were a breast cancer lab. And then when the drug was first approved, it got an approval in ovarian cancer first and then breast cancer later. 
And it, mm. then it will, as you said, this prostate, we've now started working somewhat on prostate cancer because we want as many people to benefit from the approach as possible. So I think it speaks to, you know, there have been criticisms of uh, breast cancer charities and fun, the funding for breast cancer is is disproportionate to other cancers. And I think, you know, that's, a, first of all, I don't, I don't agree with that. I think it means we need more funding on other cancers, not less funding on breast cancer, because it still is a major killer of women and men around the world. Indeed. But it also, um, what we learn from breast cancer cascades down into so much, uh, so many other areas, um, not even just cancer, but you know, primarily cancer. And there are many drugs that have been uh, developed for one cancer that get um, the uh, become useful elsewhere. So that's been our philosophy all the way through is if we can exploit what we've done and others can benefit, I don't think anybody would would object to that. And in fact, it, we should be doing it. It's, um, uh, it's our obligation to do that. Yeah, in, indeed. Um, I, I mentioned a moment ago that uh, you are trained in ACT, I believe, as well as a translational biologist. Um, I think we've touched just slightly on that, but not quite as much as, as what those words actually mean. Um, how, how do you explain what it means to be a translational scientist, a translational biologist in your case, and how important is the translational part for you? Yeah, so um, in fact, I, I didn't train as a, as a translational biologist. Mm. I trained as a basic biologist, and so you know, in fundamental mechanisms of cellular behavior and genetics, and I uh, self-taught, in fact. So what happened was um, it was after we were involved in the discovery of the BRCA2 gene, I became much more interested in the application of what I did. And that's why I started to think about drug development. I started to work with clinicians. I started to you know, think about the disease at the, at the patient level. And that then positioned me in this uh, in this translational role. Uh, I, because of my training, I had the ability to speak to basic scientists, and I learned the ability to speak to clinicians through spending a lot of time um, in conversation and at tumor boards and such like. So that meant that I had some skills in moving things from one area to another, and also back again, people. This translational turn implies unidirectionality from lab, from bench to bedside, as often said. I don't believe in that. I think it has to be fully integrated. So hmm. you can learn from the patient and bring it back to the lab. And that's where we started with this conversation was our work on mechanisms of drug resistance. Everything we know should come from the patient about drug resistance as well as from the laboratory and go back and forward. So having samples for patients that have become resistant and then models that we develop in the lab. Um, and that, I think that, you know, that iteration between bench and bedside, you know, um, more integrative work, I think is a better reflection of what we should be doing um, uh, these days. And as I, my career has developed, I know, um, director of the Cancer Center at UCSF, and I have responsibility for both cancer research and cancer clinical services. And this is the kind of ultimate version of, of translation because yeah. my aim in, in doing both of those things is to make sure that patients can benefit from the research as quickly as possible, 
And we also um, take what's happening to patients and bring it back to the laboratory. Interesting to learn that you transformed into a transla- translational biologist. You you weren't born yeah. that way. I, I didn't wake up one day. I think it was a gradual transformation. Yeah. I think that's my that's my best zone. Is uh, you know uh, what's the phrase of uh, master of none? Uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, fiddling yeah. around in many areas. I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, that that seems to be how you're described out there. Yeah, master. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe it's someday you'll accomplish something. You know, you keep working at it. You'll 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 get there. Um, so in terms of that gradual approach, um, how, how did you get into the science and research field in the first place? Um, I mean, going way back, was it always science for you? Did you, uh, you know, I, I, I hear a British accent, of course, so I can only yeah. imagine that, uh, starring on the, um, you know, on the English national team, I assume English, uh, you know, was, yeah. was a goal of yours and at some point perhaps you felt that that wasn't going to work out. So why not give science a try? Did you grow up in a science family? Uh, no, I was the first person in my um, family ever to go to college, in fact. So uh, not really a, a, an academic environment at all. Hmm. Um, and I you know, was lucky enough to go to a good school. Um, and, I, you know, I, it's hard to recall exactly what the thought process was to choose science. I think it was I were, had a an aptitude, I had an enjoyment of it. Um, I considered medicine for a while and ended up um, doing uh, research, doing a science, a science undergraduate degree and then, then doing research. Um, uh, but the way things have ended up, I, you know, I'm, I'm very close to the, the, the clinic anyway. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, you know, one, I don't have any regrets about the path I, I, I took. It's ended up being um, uh, reasonably fruitful. Uh, um, but it, it was really the, the aptitude thing, I think. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, you know, luckily for so many people around the world, you didn't have uh, an aptitude for the violin or... Uh, or, or indeed soccer yeah. or or you know soccer sorry about that uh you know football you you you're you're a translational biologist so i i know you were able to translate my my americanism um, <laughs> that's right what about the the bcrf um what, what role have they played in your research well one of the great things about the bcrf and uh, the, the funding I receive from the BCRF is that they support risk-taking research. And I think, you know, the sense you've got from what I told you about the development of power benefits is it was far from an obvious path. I actually mm-hmm. never had a grant that said, I'm going to develop a synthetic lethal power inhibitor approach to treating cancer because basically it would have never got funded. And I happen to have the resources in, in order to take the risk. And BCRF has allowed me to continue to try and innovate, take risk. And implied in taking risk is the possibility of failure. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, one wouldn't want to fail all the time. But I think in an element of, uh, of failure and, and of embracing risk allows us to take innovative leaps that one otherwise couldn't do. And I've always felt terribly supported uh, by uh, BCRF to do that. And with our current funding, we're 
trying to investigate other ways to find weaknesses in tumors and challenge drug resistance. And so that, tell me about that, and that's a, a, exactly what I wanted to ask you to close. Um, what what yeah. is next? Not, not, to, not to appear ungrateful for the uh, history no. of findings that you've made, but, but what's next? Do you, you know, will you continue down this road with PARP inhibitors and maybe you know, try to identify additional uses and, and ways to, you know, ways to, to affect cancer and, and hopefully uh, stop cancers? Um, or are there other avenues um, that, that you foresee potentially working on? Well, it's both. I think with uh, PARP inhibitors, we have our foot in the door of what's turned out to be a much larger class of tumors than we thought we were able to treat. Um, and the next play will be uh, combination therapies. Everybody's mm. excited about immunotherapy. We think it's very likely we're going to be able to combine the genetic uh, approach with PARP inhibitors with immunotherapy. Um, and, you know, I want to get to curative treatments and I know people shy away from talking about cure because it's so terribly difficult in advanced disease but I think we need to start having that conversation otherwise we're not going to get there how can we actually cure uh, people of uh, advanced breast cancer so you know I think we we're not there yet um, but at least we have the uh, you know the opening salvo with with pulp inhibitors so building on that is part one the second is that this genetic relationship between pop inhibition and BRCA is just one pair of genes in the genome that has 20,000 genes in it. Mm. And I think it's very unlikely that that's the only such useful relationship for therapeutics. We've already discovered some other um, gene-drug interactions. We're very excited about something in lobular breast cancer, um, oh. which has a particular gene defect, um, and we already have a drug that might work in that context. And then exploring uh, this, uh, this uh, constellation of uh, gene interactions. So I said there's 20,000 genes in the genome, and with new techniques like CRISPR, this is opening up to uh, full interrogation. So we can now look globally about what the interaction of one gene with every other gene is. So that's now going to produce large data that then we can try and figure out um, how to, this back to translation, generate large data sets, but not just stare at it and say, that's nice. Actually <laughs> dissect it and start to build out therapeutic approaches that we can take into clinical trials. Um, you know, there's one thing that's been an absolute joy in my career is the being lucky enough to have made um, discoveries in the lab we've seen so far away from the clinic and then actually meeting people that have benefited from um, drugs that we've helped develop that uh, has got to feel pretty darn good and uh, that's got to make for a a good day at the least if you see somebody who's personally benefiting from work that you spent years doing in the lab that's uh, that's quite so it's a, always a good day it never gets old I'll tell you I bet not. Uh, Alan, thank you. Thank you for your time. Uh, and thank you, of course, for the work and research that you've done and uh, continue to do. Well, thank you so much, Chris. And thanks to BCRF for, for helping us all uh, get where we want to go. That was my conversation with Dr. Alan Ashworth. My thanks to Dr. Ashworth for joining and you for listening. 
To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.